Welcome to a Good Friday edition of Navara Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, I'm exceptionally well. You can hear snoring in the background, but as my dog, he's having a earlier evening snooze. Uh, but it won't interrupt what I'm sure will be a fantastic show. I would never begrudge the sound of a dog snoring. Um, happy Easter to those who celebrate. It's been a gorgeous day. If you've had a, a bank holiday day off, congratulations. Um, but on this gorgeous day, we're going to talk about politics getting pretty ugly. Um, Labour are joining the Tories in the gutter when it comes to their political advertising online. We're also talking about BBC bias on Palestine, Nike versus transphobes, and Sunak caught lying. Yet again, let's go straight on to our first story. From rallying against vulnerable asylum seekers to demonizing Pakistani men as groomers, it's clear there is no electoral tactic too low for this Tory government. But what's Labour's response been? Well, they've decided to join the Tories in that gutter. This was a graphic tweeted out from the Labour Party account this week. So it says, do you think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. And then it says, under the Tories, 4,500 adults convicted of sexually assaulting children under 16 serve no prison time. Labour will lock up dangerous child abusers. Um, there are some obvious problems with this ad. First, most simply, I think, there is no evidence at all that Rishi Sunak thinks adults convicted of sexually assaulting children shouldn't go to prison. There have been some high-profile cases of rapists getting off with non-custodial sentences, but that's based on decisions by judges implementing sentencing guidelines, which Rishi Sunak hasn't changed. Secondly, that figure of 4,500 adults who didn't receive a custodial sentence is from 2010. Sunak only became an MP in 2015. And finally, Rishi Sunak is a man of South Asian heritage. So having a picture of him with a suggestion that he's soft on child rape or paedophilia in a week when there's a lot of talk about Pakistani child grooming gangs, that can be seen as a not very subtle dog whistle. There was, therefore, a big backlash online to the ad. John McDonnell tweeted this. This is not the sort of politics a Labour Party confident of its own values and preparing to govern should be engaged in. I say to the people who have taken the decision to publish this ad, please withdraw it. We, the Labour Party, are better than this. Um, Rory Stewart, obviously ex-Tory minister, also tweeted this. I saw as a justice minister the horror and damage created in the criminal justice system by this kind of bile. It's bad policy and nasty politics. Labour can and must do much better than this. So the suggestion there not only is this sort of dog whistle, but um, if we allow policy on criminal justice to be made by people who are just terrified of having an attack ad thrown at them, you end up, um, you yeah you tend to end up with bad policy. Overcrowded prisons, for example. Um, Labour's Lucy Powell um, was asked to defend the ad on BBC Breakfast. Do you stand by this tweet? Well, what I stand by is what that graphic is trying to show, which is the Prime okay. Minister of our country is responsible for the criminal justice system of our country. And currently, that criminal justice system is not working. Okay. We've got a and there huge are two backlog to this. in the courts. Yes, there are two yes, points there, to there, this. There, there, there are the real point, reasons point, why that's know, happening. I think and, I think you, know, you are aware of the point of, of this interview. I think you are aware of the point of this interview. As the Shadow Secret Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, I'm asking you, as part of the member, a member of the Shadow Cabinet, if you stand by this tweet, which says the Prime Minister does not think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison. 
I stand by what this tweet is and, and this campaign is trying to highlight. No, you're and, mincing you know, we, your words. We have, we, sure look, we have, I don't mean to be rude, but you are mincing your words. I'm not mincing Would you say, if, you, if, it's, in a tw- if it's in a tweet, would you say, yes, you can, but you haven't answered my question yet. And it's quite a simple question. I asked if you believe this, if you believe Rishi Sunak thinks that adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison, and you haven't answered my question. Well, the record of his government says that people are getting off lightly for these uh, sorts of offences, and he is the prime minister of that government. And, you know, people produce uh, digital campaigns and and digital material and, and campaign literature to highlight these sorts of uh, sorts of issues in in these ways, and you know there were some really serious issues here at stake. Uh, there are criminals who are getting off, I think, what most people would regard as lightly for what are serious offences. And Powell was also asked to respond to the John McDonald tweet that we showed you earlier. Well, look, I, I can see that it's not to to everybody's taste, absolutely, and that some people, uh, you know, won't uh, won't like it. And, and clearly, John McDonald is, is one of those. Um, but you know that's that is the sort of cut and thrust nature of, of politics. I, it's not my. I didn't design the graphic. It's not uh, my graphic. It's not my graphic. Uh, of course, you didn't design the graphic. But I mean, it's, your, your political party designed the graphic, and therefore you are supposed to answer for it, even if it it's not the case that you're moonlighting as a graphic designer in the Labour Party campaigns department. Um, Aaron, what do you make of the ad and the backlash to it? Well, the ad was disgusting. It was disgusting for several reasons. I mean, we can we can talk about that in a moment. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Rishi Sunak is responsible for all of the sentencing in regard to this specific kind of crime since 2010. He wasn't an MP, as you said, till 2015. He wasn't the prime minister till six months ago. He's responsible for all of that. But presumably Keir Starmer isn't responsible for you know publications being put up by the Labour Party under his name. He is, by the way. Lucy Powell might not be responsible, but her boss, Keir Starmer, is. That's where the buck stops. We heard that so frequently with Jeremy Corbyn. Of course, anything that goes wrong with Labour under Keir Starmer, it's somebody else's fault. Any, anything good is, is Keir Starmer, just like the CPS, by the way. Anything bad which happened at the Crown Prosecution Service when he was Director of Public Prosecutions, anything bad, nothing to do with him. The Jimmy Savile case, that was somebody else. Anything good, well, I was the Director of Public Prosecutions and I did this, this, and this. You see how it works. All the mistakes are by other people. All the success stories are by Mr. Starmer. There's a pattern here, isn't there? Uh, secondly, how many people can, you know, were guilty of the exact same crime who didn't go to prison 1997 to 2010? How many people? Hundreds? Thousands? I mean, I don't know the data. I'd suspect it's at least in the hundreds, okay, of the exact same crime talked about in that image. Does that therefore mean that Tony Blair also doesn't think that those guilty of such crimes shouldn't go to prison? Or Gordon Brown? How many people were guilty of the exact same thing from 2008, 2010 when Gordon Brown was prime minister? Or John Major? Does, does he, you know, we can go back and we can basically say every, every prime minister in the history of this country believes something absolutely appalling because a certain judge somewhere decided that somebody shouldn't go to prison for something. It's clearly a ridiculous argument to make. It's logically absurd. It falls apart um, at, the, at the most remote prodding. And then secondly, thirdly rather, is this idea of Sunak being responsible. Like I say, he's been the prime minister for six months. If he'd been the prime minister for several years, okay, you you can sort of at least say, well, there's some sort of credibility to this argument. And I've seen some people in their their comments and their replies go, this has got nothing to do with race. Don't be silly. This is the left being so stupid. Well, isn't it interesting, Michael, that after 13 years of Tory government, 
We've never had any kind of attack like this under Ed Miliband, including uh, Jeremy Corbyn too. Uh, I can't remember any attacks against the Tories, by the way, uh, under Gordon Brown or, or Tony Blair that were quite this bad. But within six months of the Conservatives having a Brown Prime Minister, we basically have, you know, an image of the guy and saying, look, he has no problems with uh, uh, paedophiles assaulting children. Within six months. And, and people, people are welcome to say, well, you're wrong. This has got nothing to do with race. They would have done the same against David Cameron or Michael. Happ they didn't. It didn't happen against David Cameron. It's happening within six months against a brown guy. So explain that to me, please. And then finally, these people saying these appalling things about Rishi Sunak, well, I don't really care about Rishi Sunak, but I do believe in a little thing called the truth and something else called logical consistency and coherence. These people are the exact same types who were basically saying, Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. Aaron Bastani is disgusting human beings, vile. Michael Walker, he's, uh, uh, you know, abhorrence. Ash Sarkar, an apologist for murderers. This is what these people do. This is their stock in trade. Hyperbole. Because they've got no policy. You would have thought, being out in the wilderness for four years when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, 2015 to 2019, the Labour right would have come up with some policies on climate change, on the housing crisis, on low pay, on the economy, on the administration of public services. They haven't. They literally haven't. This is why they're talking so much about crime. Now, I have no problem with Labour talking about crime. Clearly, it matters to many people. It should do. There are many victims of crime. And the statistics in terms of the government solving crime are going down, 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 and down. But the fact it's center stage with the Labour Party so immediately and so viscerally in disgusting campaigning against this country's first brown uh, prime minister, I don't think is a coincidence. It's because fundamentally, they haven't really got any, any policy chops on anything else. And I think it tells us something about how they would govern. Not really offering solutions, not really putting much more money in your pocket, but a hell of a lot of name-calling towards the people who might dare to disagree with them. Let's have a look at how the people who kind of are responsible for this ad or more responsible than Lucy Powell for this ad have responded. Because she, of course, you know, her defence was pretty tepid. It was a tepid defence of the advert. An unnamed Labour source has been more forthright. This was when speaking to the Huffington Post. This is from... The Huffington Post. Huff Post UK has learned that defiant Labour officials are unrepentant and are willing to repeat the stunt as the countdown continues to next year's general election. One source said, quote, Sunak never condemned Johnson when he accused Keir of letting Jimmy Savile off, so F him. What's the difference between this and what he says every single week about Starmer voted against tougher sentences or when he said Keir was the friend of people traffickers? We're not prepared to be the mopes anymore while the Tories say whatever they want. Their entire 13-year record is up for grabs next year from the horrors of the NHS to the failures on crime. And then they write, Labour has held talks with strategists in the Australian Labour Party, which won last year's election in the country and US President Joe Biden's Democratic Party. Quote, they told us to ignore the wailings of the people who expect you to be kind losers and fight as viciously as the Conservatives do, a source said. Um, since that article was published in the Huffington Post, and despite this outroar, um, the Labour Party have put out a, a pretty similar um, advert, another similar one, same graphic. This time it says this. Do you think an adult convicted of possessing a gun with intent to harm should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. And then in a similar format to the previous graphic you saw, under the Tories, 937 adults convicted of possession of a firearm with intent to harm serve no prison time. Labour will lock up dangerous gunmen. Um, Aaron, the point being made here, I suppose, is that 
the Labour Party are sick or these strategists are sick of having to play by different rules to the Conservative Party. They're saying, look, if, if they can lie about our leader, we can lie about their leader, so long as it has some relation to the truth. I mean, of course, from the Labour Party's perspective, they don't really care. I mean, it's actually better for them that it's not completely true because that causes the controversy. And now they've got a situation, just as they did before, you know, you couldn't really back up the Keir Starmer, Jimmy Savile thing. But the, the more that you have newspapers talking about Keir Starmer and Jimmy Savile in the same sentence, the worse it is. You've got a similar situation here. The more people are talking about Rishi Sunak and child rapists in the same sentence, even if their, their initial claim didn't stack up, that's going to be to their advantage. So, so why should the Labour Party play to different roles to the Conservatives? Well, first, I think this is much worse than the Jimmy Savile thing, because Starmer was at the CPS when that was all going on. And he can, of course, say it was somebody else. And that, that's fine. He can say that. But Rishi Sunak is being blamed for the numbers involved, as you said at the top of this story, go back to 2010. Rishi Sunak wasn't a Tory MP until 2015. So the idea that he's responsible for stuff and decisions being made, by the, by the way, by the judiciary, nothing to do with the political party. But even if you want to go down that road, he wasn't an MP until 2015. You know, I don't think he was in the cabinet until 2018, 2019. So it, that clearly, I think, makes it worse than what was going on with the Savile thing. Secondly, you know, Labour go on about integrity. Oh, oh, Boris Johnson, awful man, awful. You know, he's got no integrity, no morals. We need to bring decency back to centre stage and public life. And then within six months, they call the country's first brown prime minister a friend of paedophiles. Come on. It's the hypocrisy that gets me, Michael. Okay. And then the point about the strategists, or we've spoken to people in the United States and Australia, if that was true, if that was true, and you were going to say, look, this strategy we're going to adopt in the 2024 election, different in 2019, different in 2015, different in 2010, then why don't you do a big double page spread about it in the Sunday Times? Why would you tell Huffington Post and Kevin Schofield, Kevin Slowfield, Kevin Nomates, the, the guy is literally not a journalist. He's just somebody who just, he basically does press releases for the Labour right in the Huffington Post. What, what, if that was, the, that was the big story, well, we've been talking to the big analysts and consultants in Australia and the United States. Who, by the way, Hillary Clinton in 2016? Who? So it, it, I, I just think that's just a nonsense that's been given by somebody on the Labour right to, to Schofield because he'll publish it. But if that's the case, do a big double spread about it. Get a big news story out of it. What's the upside in telling Kevin Schofield so he can tweet about it? What's the upside? So I, I don't buy that for a second, Michael. I think it's a, it's a nonsensical point. And, and should Labour, you know, fight as viciously as the Tories? Yes, on the issues that matter, of course they should. But that doesn't mean you should lie. It doesn't mean you should be able to deceive and misrepresent. In that tweet put up by the Labour Party, you have a Twitter note clarifying what it says. That is embarrassing. That is fundamentally embarrassing. And I think it goes back to that point I said, Michael, just a few moments ago. Hypocrisy is the worst thing to be guilty of in politics. And I think it's profoundly hypocritical of the Labour Party to base their political brand on integrity and Keir Starmer being this upstanding, principled man. And then they say, well, you know what? We're going to be just as bad as the Conservatives. Make your minds up. Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, I, I suppose I want to dig down in this, this comment about hypocrisy being the worst thing in politics, because that can be a, a moral, ethical judgment, or it can be a sort of strategic judgment. Now, I think when it comes to winning elections, hypocrisy isn't the worst thing you can be critiqued of, right? The worst thing you can be critiqued of is being soft on Jimmy Savile or child rapists, right? So, so that's clearly what they're trying to do here. And I suppose if you wanted to be very sympathetic to them, you could say, look, the Tories started this argument. It was the Tories that started talking um, about grooming gangs and demonizing um, Muslim men and saying that Labour councils were soft on it. And what Labour are doing is they're clearly saying there's a cost to this for you guys as well, right? If, if you want to go hard on this, 
will play hard. Um, and you know, presumably they think the attack is, is the best form of defense because they're very worried that when it comes to a general election, what's going to happen is they're going to be trying to talk about the economy and then the conservatives will distract the conversation by talking about Keir Starmer's record as the director of public prosecutions. And they want to be getting ahead of that curve and saying, look, we can do this too. You know, if you want to talk about crime, let's talk about crime. You don't think there's anything to that even strategically, if you, even if you think it's ethically dubious? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about crime, Michael. And I think there's many things you can talk about with regards to the Tories failing on crime. I don't think there's anything wrong with highlighting the exact statistics that they've talked about. But I think, frankly, what they've said about Rishi Sunak and what he believes, I think that's libelous. Frankly, I think it's libelous. And, oh, well, you should be able to do libel. I mean, personally, I don't think you need to do that. Secondly, as I've said, you know, let's see the data on Tony Blair and Gordon Brown with the exact same crimes. Does that make them responsible for those decisions? Does that mean they don't think that adults guilty of sexual assaults of a child shouldn't go to prison? Of course it doesn't mean that. It's stupid. It, it, it debases and, and stupefies the political conversation in this country. And by the way, if you care about solving problems, you don't want to do that. Now, I'm not suggesting the whole, when they go low, we go high. I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't be stupid. Don't debase don't lie and don't misrepresent. So of course, yes, I understand the idea of being, you know, going hard on, on law and order. Of course, draw attention to the Tories' failures on, on, on this issue over 13 years. But I, I think instrumentalizing the issue of sexual assault around children to say something which is untrue about the prime minister or indeed anyone, I think is disgusting. And I think it's ethically bad. And I also think, I have to push back on this in particular, Michael, I think it's probably politically unwise for the Tories, uh, for, the, for the Labour Party, because you, look, Labour don't want to fight an election on this. They don't want to fight an election on this. Nobody's going to say, let's, let's vote for Labour. Look at Rotherham, right? Let's look at the grooming gang scandals in, in various towns and cities across this country over the last 13 years. Let's vote Labour. Nobody's going to say that. And you're saying that the Tories started this. Hold on a second, Michael. I think that is letting off local government and various state agencies, including the police, in a number of these places which overwhelmingly had Labour councils. That's just a fact. That is just a fact. And by the way, I don't think the Tories have gone particularly hard on that. Given, given the truth of the matter, I mean, it's beginning to happen now because Labour are 20 points ahead in the polls. But the Tories would be entitled to say some pretty damning things about Labour and local government, given what happened particularly in places like Rotherham. I mean, you spoke very, very well about the disgusting nature of, of comments made by police uh, forces in some of these places, which is just appalling. So the idea that, well, the Tories started this, I, I, that doesn't wash with me. And look, when they did the whole Savile stuff, which was Johnston, it wasn't Sunak, it's important to say, but look, Sunak might go and do something similar, right? We're dealing with politicians, they'll say broadly anything to win. When that happened, I think quite rightly, many people said, this is how you start a slippery slope and you basically end up with QAnon-style politics in this country, when basically you're just talking about paedophilia and politicians not being hard enough on paedophiles, being friends with paedophiles, politicians being secret paedophiles. And by the way, we already had one of those conspiracy theories in this country. It was peddled by Tom Watson and James O'Brien. Okay? They believed some absolute fantasist called Carl Beach that there was this huge paedophile ring in Westminster and that everybody was a part of it. And so we've already had a, a, a quasi-Q-style conspiracy theory in this country around child abuse, and it was being pelled by people on the centre-left. And yet the exact same sort of elements in civil society in this country, they love to say, we're the rational ones, we're so sane, the Conservative Party, the right, they're outlandish, they're crazy. Well, you were believing Carl Beach. So if you don't want us to go down this road as a country, if you think we should be solving problems, I think this is very unwise. 
I have no political problem. I might not agree with it, but I have no political problem with Labour being big on law and order, talking about more police. I understand all of that, Michael. Strategically, I think there's a great deal of intelligence to it. But this is not a piece of that. I think the more you go into hysteria, confected outrage, and frankly, the madness that we've seen across the Atlantic in the United States with this stuff, the more that benefits the right. It will not benefit a center-left political party. Well, there's certainly no precedent for that anyway. Yeah, I suppose I should clarify, when I say that Rishi Sunak has already gone low, what I mean is him literally standing in front of TV cameras this week and saying that Britain has a problem with Pakistani grooming gangs, right? Uh, to me, that's a, a, a bigger problem than this ad from Labour. Now, that doesn't justify this ad from Labour, but I think that is lower than this. I don't think Labour have now gone lower than the Tories. I think Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak standing up and talking about Muslim grooming gangs is way more dangerous than what Labour have done here. And I would say the same thing about their sort of rhetoric with regard to refugees. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly on the side of the Tories have gone lower than Labour, but Labour here are doing something which is deeply questionable at best. Um, let's look at the reason I think why it's a partly this is being talked about now because the Tories started talking about grooming gangs, I think. Um, but also it's because of a story which hit the news this week um, and it concerns sentencing of a child rapist um, in Scotland. So it's a decision by a judge in Scotland. And that was that 21-year-old Sean Hogg was spared jail after being found guilty of raping a 13-year-old schoolgirl in a park. Hogg was 17 at the time he committed the crime. Um, he was ordered to do 270 hours of community service. Um, now, that seemingly light sentence has caused a lot of outrage, outrage, quite justifiably, I think. I'm explaining the decision. The judge in the case said this. For the level of seriousness, I have to consider your liability and have regard to your age as a factor. This offence, if committed by an adult over 25, you attract a sentence of four or five years. I don't consider that appropriate and don't intend to send you to prison. You are a first offender with no previous history of prison. You are 21 and was 17 at the time. Prison does not lead me to believe this will contribute to your rehabilitation. Um, the Chief Executive of Rape Crisis Scotland said this in response to the sentence. This is an extremely serious case, and we are shocked this perpetrator has not received a custodial sentence. Given the gravity of this crime and the fact it was tried at the High Court, this sentence appears to us to be worryingly lenient. Our thoughts are with the survivor of this crime. For survivors of any sexual violence, it can be very difficult to see reports of convicted perpetrators walking free from court. Um, lots of strange things about this story. I mean, obviously, that does seem like a lenient sentence. For me, what jumps out is that he was 17 when he committed the crime and he's 21 now, which makes it seem like, you know, the justice process has moved very, very slowly here. Um, uh, as I understand it as well, sentencing, if, if a long time has elapsed, it takes into account what's happened in the years in between. So they can say, well, if in the last four years he hasn't done anything wrong, um, then, you know, and he seems as if he's remorseful, then potentially he's a different person age 21 to which he was when he was 17. I mean, Aaron, what do you what do you make of this particular story and potentially the idea that there are people who are committing sexual offences who are getting off too lightly? Well, clearly the guy should go to prison. Of course he should. I mean, I, I think that's relatively straightforward. The idea you get you know, probation for what happened there. And also the, the young woman was 13, he was 17. And he's going to be on a register for not a particularly long time. Important to say this is in Scotland. There are guidelines there that you treat people differently if they're under 25. I find that stupid. I find that strange. 
the age of criminal responsibility in England and Wales is 10, which is equally strange. So there's a strange sort of weird dissonance, right? You've got criminal responsibility is 10, and yet we're saying that we don't sentence 25-year-olds or people until they're 25 as we would for a regular adult, which is, I, I think, outlandish. I think a sexual assault should obviously be punished very severely, particularly for a 13-year-old. I think it's extraordinary. But Michael, on the broader point here, I want to read this to you. Um, some of us have worked in countries where the judges do as the executive, which means the government tells them. It is corrosive of democracy. Who do you think said that? Um, I don't know. You tell me. Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer said that it's corrosive for democracy when the executive, i.e. the government, interferes in the independent decisions of the judiciary. But apparently, Labour doesn't believe that anymore. Apparently, you know, an independent judiciary doesn't matter. And actually, the government should get involved in everything. So you, again, you can't have it both ways. I personally think that's outrageous what's happened in Scotland. I think you should change the sentencing guidelines so it can never happen again. But you can't bleat on about an independent judiciary and say that the minute politicians are getting involved in uh, the decisions of the judiciary and judges, that that's the end of democracy. It's, it's stupid. The, the man will say whatever he wants in order to, to get to the top. He will. He will. He will say absolutely whatever he wants. And I think, actually, take a step back. We've come out of the Brexit period, Twenty you know, 2016 to 2019, really after general election 2017 to 2019. And we had many, many people in the sense ground of politics basically talk about anybody they disagreed to their right as fascists. They did. If You, uh, you know, it, I said as somebody on the left that we have to accept the Brexit vote. People can disagree with me and they have every right to and they have good reasons to disagree. But some people said, that's fascist. You're a fascist, right? And then now the exact same people are saying when Keir Starmer says, yep, I'll, I'll vote for the Tory deal. Yep, I'll vote for the Tory deal with regards to Northern Ireland. Yep, I'll vote for the hardest of all Brexits. Well, he has to do that. That's political expediency. So Keir Starmer wanted an independent judiciary. Now he's asking for the government to get involved in these cases. Well, he has to do that. It's political expediency. It's all games. Well, again, I don't think that's a very smart way for a country to run its affairs. I think consistency and coherence is much wiser in the long term. So... It's something to think about, Michael. Of course, that particular case is disgusting. I think the guidelines in Scotland strike me, frankly, as ridiculous and should be changed. But it's very odd to me that you have politicians talk about an independent judiciary and how people on the other side bashing judges are awful, and then they do the exact same thing themselves. I mean, is that not... I mean, because obviously politicians do set the law, and when you make legislation, you can say, what are the boundaries? What are the guidelines for, you know, how serious a crime this is, how long it would get? Now, I know there are sort of these sentencing panels, which decides sort of the specifics of it. But it is, a, you know, a, a, it, it doesn't challenge the independence of the judiciary for a politician to say, there should be a minimum of this amount of custodial sentence for this crime. Now, there are lots of arguments as to say why minimum sentences are a bad idea, because it removes it? all the discretion of the judge. Um, this is what Rory Stewart was tweeting about. So that they do this in America a lot for political reasons. Then you end up with prisons which are full. But it doesn't necessarily that doesn't remove the independence of the judiciary to decide how to interpret the law. It's just you know a government can change right. the law to have some impact on how long people go to jail for. Michael, every single person who hasn't gone to prison for assaulting a child in this country since 2010 is apparently the person for the prime minister. Right. So and, and, and it's important. this is political propaganda. Labour want that to be seen by as many people as possible. So I don't think on the one hand you can say, well, Labour believe in an independent judiciary. And then they're saying this man, by the way, who wasn't even a, an MP until 2015, until five years after the statistics started. This man is personally responsible for these people not going to prison. You, you can't have it both ways. We want a more informed, enlightened electorate, Labour dumbing down, throwing muck and talking nonsense. So I, I fundamentally disagree with you, Michael. That quote, look, 
Some of us have worked in countries where the judges do as the executive tells them. It is corrosive of democracy. Where's the line? Where is the line where that becomes corrosive of democracy? I think the line for Keir Starmer is, well, when it's the other people doing it, then they're the baddies. When I do it, I'm the goodie. You know, where is the line? What should the relationship be between elected politicians and judges? And you know what, Michael, if that was put to Keir Starmer, I doubt very much you'd give a particularly clear answer because he doesn't do clear answers on big questions. He does mudslinging and equivocation. Let's go on to our next story. Israel has launched airstrikes in Lebanon and the Gaza Strip. They say this is in response to rocket attacks they blame on Hamas. This all follows in the wake of the Israeli police storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque during Ramadan. That was for the third year in a row. Mohammed Al-Kurd is a Palestinian writer who was invited onto BBC News to comment on the situation. The Israeli government, of course, would point to the violence that we've seen from Palestinians as well recently and the salvo of rockets that came across the border today. We know that... The Hamas leader um, is in is in Beirut, uh, Ismail Haniya, and we know that that couldn't have been done today without the tacit approval of Hezbollah. So the Israelis would say that the Palestinians bear some responsibility for the security situation in Israel as well. You know that is such a predictable question. I could have I could have written it myself because not only has one of the holiest places been raided twice in a row, not only have ninety three. Palestinians been killed since the start of the year. Not only had the town of Hawara been subjected to a Jewish pogrom, and even if no Palestinians were killed, millions of us continue to live under a brutal regime of apartheid, under a brutal regime of military occupation. Both internationally recognized there are 2 million Palestinians that live besieged in an open air prison in the Gaza Strip. How much violence is enough violence for people to retaliate? Let me ask you this, Christian. If somebody invaded your home and attacked your family, what would you do? Would you turn the other cheek? That was Mohammed Al-Kurd. We've shown you clips of him before. I mean, he is just so impressive in terms of the, the discipline he has when taking part in these interviews. Because what will always happen, what Israel wants to happen essentially, is for this to be about tit for tat. Oh, they sent a rocket, so we did an airstrike. Then they sent some fireworks, so we raided a mosque. And then the police, the, sorry, not the police, the, the media just invite both people to condemn the actions of something on their side. Will you condemn the Hamas rockets? And then they say to Israel, will you condemn the airstrikes? And then it just seems like this fight where both sides are to blame. It's a cycle of violence. What could you possibly do? And what Mohammed Al-Kurd is excellent at doing is saying, look, the context here, the context in which this is happening is an illegal occupation. So let's stop talking about who shot what rocket where. The issue here is an illegal occupation. Again, we talked about this on the show before. A good analogy here is, is Ukraine and Russia. We don't see these sort of constant media debates where it's sort of like, well, a Ukrainian, a Ukrainian military tank shot at a Russian um, artillery. Um, so was it kind of the Ukrainians' fault as well as the Russians'? Is this just a cycle of violence which is taking place between the Ukrainian and Russian armies? No, they don't ask that. Quite rightly, because the context here is that the Russians invaded Ukraine. Ukraine is being occupied, right? So, so if Ukraine fights back, we don't say, oh, well, did you provoke Russia to do some further attacks? No, they're defending their country. And the media don't talk about Palestine in the same way, and they should. And I think Mohammed Al-Kurd is you know, doing great work trying to encourage them to talk about this in a way which is more rooted in reality than ideology. Let's see what happened next in the interview, because the BBC brought in two more voices. One was a British diplomat and the other was a pundit from the Right Wing Heritage Foundation. 
Peter Ricketts, we've been talking earlier in the programme tonight about, about peace processes in the context of Northern Ireland and, and, and what happened in, in Belfast. When, when you listen uh, to that and you, you hear the anger and, and, and the recollection of what has happened in the past, it's very difficult to think there can ever be a peace in the Middle East. Well, yes, peace between Israel and Palestinians, certainly. I mean, we've heard about the Abraham Accords, peace between uh, Israel and some of the Arab states. But in that essential conflict, uh, things have got worse over the 40 years that I've been dealing with it rather than better. And now we are again at a very, very high level of tension. Uh, we can see there in that testimony how deep the divide is between the communities trying to live together in some fashion uh, in the state of Israel. And now um, some group or other, Hezbollah or some other extremist group has fired 34 missiles from Lebanon just at this moment of extremely high tension. That's the largest salvo uh, since 2006 when there was very heavy fighting on the northern frontier. So the situation looks very, very tense indeed. But the problem is, Victoria, that the international community will focus on Hezbollah and they'll focus on Hamas and they won't, they, they, they won't focus on, on what we've just heard about the violence towards Palestinians. Well, and I think that's actually very much the point, echoing Lord Ricketts, that, that I mean, the Palestinian Authority did not fire these rockets at Israel. Some combination of Hamas and Hezbollah, both of which are Iranian proxies, decided to escalate this on this historic uh, sort of confluence of Ramadan and Passover and Easter, which has given us you know, very heightened tensions. If Iran wanted to be a productive actor, they would ratchet down tensions during this time, not create this dual uh, attack from both the Gaza Strip and Lebanon. And then tonight we have reports that the Houthi want to get in on the act. Let me bring Excuse you in, Mohammed. You, you want to respond to that? Yes, I, I, I think uh, I think massive issue with this framing uh, of this as, a, as some kind of religious conflict, as some kind of like civil war between two communities trying to live with each other. There is a population, millions of people that are under the mercy and under the rule and under a military occupation of the other population. That is that is the, the status quo here. And the escalation does not begin or end with rockets. Living under occupation day in and day out is an escalation. I am so amazed that despite how far removed you are from the matter, despite the lack, the clear lack of expertise and experience on Palestine, you somehow seem to possess the same level of entitlement that Balfour possessed when he declared Palestine a home for the Zionists, as if it was his to get... Now, again, I thought that was super interesting, that intervention, and especially, I mean, it, it does just sound very colonial, doesn't it? What's going on? Oh, there's the Jews and the Arabs, and they have this ancient conflict. And as I say, one side um, sort of does one action, then the other side fights back, then the other side. It's this cycle of violence between these two very different people. What it completely ignores, there is a military occupation. There is a military occupation of Palestine, which has gone on um, for, depending on your analysis, 50 years or 70 years, right? So whether or not you think that's started in the 70s or started um, in, or the 60s, sorry, or the 40s. Um, Aaron, what's your take here? What can you do? I mean, it's important to say as well, people might be watching, they go, oh, the BBC's coverage of Israel-Palestine is appalling, which it is. But that's no accident. There is a range of, quote unquote, media advocacy organizations, pro-Israel, Zionist organizations. You know, you say Zionist organization, that's what, it's literally what they call themselves. Um, Honestreporting.com, Media Watch. And if there is a BBC report, which is just accurate, which is literally just accurate, 
then they will organize petitions, call-ins, they will basically harass these journalists um, into recanting. And as I've said so many times in the show, I, I made a video about it here on Navarro Media, this is what's called the electric fence approach to public relations. Nick Davies talks about it in his book, um, Flat Earth News. And that basically is every time you get journalists even just beginning to touch on the truth of this conflict, little shock. You raise the costs. They don't do it again. It's very clever from a sort of theoretical public relations point of view, but that's how it operates. So when you see the media time after time after time offering incredibly poor analysis of what's going on in Israel, it's not an accident. Yes, it's partly incurious journalists. Yes, you know, it's partly about a sort of Western quasi-racist view on this thing, an ancient hatred of thousands of years. Well, why do you think that? You read, you read the Bible? The Bible's 2,000 years old, so you think that's what this goes back to? No. The conflict in regards to Israel-Palestine is a century old. It's a century old. It's a very modern conflict. And, and the key tropes and themes of it come out of 19th century European colonialism. Is the exact same project that the original Zionist settlers wanted to perpetuate in that land. We, we, we can you know, talk about that all evening. They themselves said this. Uh, they themselves said that this is a land that needs to be cleared of the indigenous population to make way for settlers. Um, we can't obviously talk about that for several hours as much as perhaps we would like to, because then of course our audience and our listeners and our viewers would be a little bit better informed than if they were watching uh, the BBC on this matter. But like I say, hugely important to say, the electric fence approach, done for a reason, it works. You know, a few years ago, we did a story about that as uh, that, that uh, American Jewish journalist. I think she was at the Associated Press, was it, Michael? You know, she, she basically lost her job because she didn't have the correct opinions on this thing. So there is a very heavy uh, censorship on this matter, uh, expedited by, quote-unquote, non-governmental organizations, quote-unquote, civil society organizations, and they claim they want factual reporting, but what they want fundamentally is an asymmetric view on things, which only ever criticizes Palestinians and only seeks to defend the, the actions of the Israeli state. So you're very rarely going to find proper media coverage and scrutiny of Israel-Palestine, and that's partly why. Mm. And I think I think it's actually even a bit more subtle than that, because I know I know that's what you said, that, that's what these groups aim for, right? But the outcome, the reality isn't that you have a media establishment that's unwilling to criticize Israel because it's very willing to criticize Israel, but it will also criticize Israel in the same sentence as criticizing the Palestinians. You say, oh, well, Israel have done this bad thing. The Palestinians have done this bad thing. It's all incredibly complex. And then they say this is balance. And you also got this when it came to the labor debate about the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Because you get, I remember going on um, Politics Live with Jess Phillips and her saying, look, I can criticize the Israeli government without being anti-Semitic. I've just done it right now. And then I, you know, I can't remember what she talked about, you know, criticize some particular policy. But what she was fundamentally opposed to was talking about apartheid or talking about occupation, because these are structural issues. If, you, if you're talking about how the structural situation is fundamentally one of occupation and one of dispossession, that's what you're not allowed to say. What you're allowed to say is, oh, the, Israel's, the, the Israelis should act with a bit more restraint. Oh, the Israelis should um, be a bit more careful not to bomb civilians. But what you're not allowed to talk about is the fundamental context, because that's what's challenging. And so long as we're talking about, well, he fired this rocket, they did this airstrike, that works in Israel's favor, because essentially that works in favor of the status quo. What you're saying there is, this is too complicated. There are people on both sides, difficult issues. Meh, let's just, let's just leave it. You know, you're probably not going to resolve this one with these ancient hatreds. That's essentially what's going on here, right? And I think Mohammed Al-Kurd, as I say, called it out.
impeccably. Um, let's go straight to our next story. In a week full of attacks on trans people by politicians, the media, and so-called human rights commissions, there is one moral panic that stands out as the most ridiculous. It concerns an advert from Nike featuring the influencer Dylan Mulvaney. This is the advert shared on her Instagram. Now, before this row erupted, I hadn't heard of Dylan Mulvaney, but she has 1.7 million followers on Instagram and 10 million followers on TikTok. So you can, you know, it's no surprise Nike would want to partner with her for this lighthearted at this paid promotion on her account. However, among those hostile to trans people, the ad has caused an absolute uproar. In The Telegraph, Judith Woods declared that sports bras adverts should use biological women. Um, she hopes the advert is commercial suicide for Nike and that it will give the Wokarati a whack. Sharon Davies, she's a former British Olympic swimmer. She's launched a campaign to boycott Nike over the ad. And Donald Trump Jr. has even got involved. He's slammed Nike for what he calls caving to the woke trans mafia. He said, quote, this is an insult to actual women. Remember, this is a man campaigning for his father, Donald Trump Sr., who said he likes to grab women by the pussy. The advert was the theme of Andrew Castle's call-in show on LBC, and a trans woman gave this impeccable response. Well, didn't we start out originally when J.K. Rowling said, wear what you like, dress how you like, and now we're at the point where we're being told we can't dress how we like? Oh, so... you, can, you can dress how you like. Well, we can't, can we? Because someone has put an Instagram post up... Um, uh, uh, you know, a trans woman wearing a Nike bra, and suddenly no, everybody's it's more thinking than that, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. No, what it's more it than then? that. It's more than that. What it is, this is a big-time campaign put out by a major corporate, I believe the biggest sports brand in the world, and they're using a trans woman to advertise um, women uh, cl clothing for women, and, and some women are offended. But why? Be <laughs> why do you think? I have absolutely no idea because at the end of the day, there are hundreds of other Nike adverts with cis women in them. Can they not just not look at the one with the trans woman in it and just look at the one with the cis woman in it? Or does the trans woman cancel out all the cis women? To You know, how many trans women um, is versus how many cis well, women does this, it have to be? This, this woman, for instance, wasn't born with breasts. Yes, but no women are born with breasts, are they? They're born as babies. Well, okay. <laughs> um, I, I suppose that's a bit of a, a gotcha. I don't even know what to say, really. It's just an insult. Okay, women are insulted. Okay, right. So some I, some I, women are I'm, insulted, and I'm just I'm, I'm passing it on right, to you. Okay. Some women are insulted so by this. Size, I'm a size 34D. Um, do I not wear a bra? Can I walk topless down the street then? If I'm a man, as everybody keeps saying to me, can I pop into Tesco's without a top on? Is everyone going to be okay with that? Do you understand why women, some women who are biologically born women, um, are offended by this? No, I don't. I just think they're making a big fuss about nothing and there's other things for women to be concerned about, such as abortion rights and, and, and well, there's, unfair Well, there's plenty for us all to worry about. Things. You're absolutely right. That was such an amazing call and a really brave one as well, because obviously the context here is that trans people, especially trans women, they're being seen as absolute threats. 
And then this is someone who felt brave enough to call into LBC, which isn't often or isn't always, let's say, friendly towards trans rights and the dignity of trans people. And so articulately and disarmingly as well, actually, sort of saying, why is this a problem? What am I? I am a trans woman. I have breasts. Are we not supposed to wear bras? You know, what's this about? I love the point. I was like, what's the ratio of trans women and cis women that would be acceptable in adverts? I mean, Aaron, what, what, what do you think of this? I mean, there, there are aspects of um, the trans rights debate where I feel like, you know, the way the conversation is had is pretty despicable and awful and there are lots of people fear-mongering. But I do think there are, you know, genuine policy issues which need to be resolved when it comes to sports or prisons, for example. When it comes to this kind of thing, where it's just people getting offended over an advert on a popular TikToker's account, you just have to think, what is going on with these people? You know, how how is this not embarrassing to their cause? Yet there are so many people not waking up to the fact that this is, you know, this is a bunch of extremists here. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it's just completely insane and incoherent as that brilliant caller, you know, put forward. So for instance, it goes back to something we talked about yesterday uh, on the show where you had Daniel Radcliffe with his girlfriend. There's a picture that was shared by a woman on Twitter and then basically there's loads of people saying, oh, that's a man, that's a trans, that's a trans woman, it's a man. And that's why, you know, um, he, he supports for trans rights, et cetera. It's, it's a cis woman, she's pregnant. <laughs> and, and you can see very, very easily how this slips from the policing of trans women's bodies or trans people's bodies, but particularly trans women's bodies, to the policing of cis women's bodies. You know, so there's a woman who might be particularly tall, um, who, who, who might not, you know, resemble some of the sort of stereotypes they have about femininity. These people would call that person a man, right? And we're in a very strange moment where people who claim to be feminists are going around calling other cis women, other women born as women, men. You look like, you look like a man. When I was a kid, feminists didn't do that. You know, this is a very strange moment we're in. And so people might say, and I saw some of these things on Twitter, again, just think clearly, try and be logical. I know the media tries to push back against the possibility of that, but be logical. Oh, this person doesn't have breasts while they're wearing a sports bra. So what, a flat-chested cis woman, woman born as a woman with, with no breasts, she can't wear a sports bra? Is that now the rule? Or if there's a trans woman who has breasts, she can wear them. Do they have to be the result of hormonal changes? If they're breast implants, they can't wear them. Okay, so if a, a cis woman has breast implants, she, that means she can't wear a sports bra. You know, the, the policing of people's bodies like this, you can see where it goes, right? It's, it's clearly quite dangerous. You know, I remember growing up in this country, I'm so, sure some people will be watching this, remember this guy, Mr. Motivator on Good Mo you know, what's now Good Morning Britain, GMTV. Black dude wearing a leotard and, 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 and lycra and leggings, right? And, 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 the, and the idea, and you know, the idea that somebody in 2023 wearing leggings, lycra, and a sports bra would, would elicit this kind of you know, response in the media 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I don't think anybody would have foresaw that. I think most people say, yeah, people are generally more progressive over time, more enlightened over time. I don't buy that, by the way, and this is a case in point. But that's the, that was the general consensus. And now we're going backwards. Now we have people who call themselves feminists saying to other women that they're like men because they're trying to police other people's bodies. It's completely ridiculous. And the point about um, this, this influencer, they have 10 million followers on TikTok, okay? That's what businesses do. They try and reach audiences. Now, I'm not, I, if you, I said this on Twitter and then people say, oh, this is woke washing. Now you're a friend of capitalism. Yeah, Nike want to sell their stuff, no shit. And they probably think there's an underserved audience. There's an audience we can reach through X, Y, Z people. 
we'll reach out to them. This person has 10 million followers on TikTok. Of course, they're going to get offers from brands to do stuff. Like, grow up. That's the world we're in. And, and I saw somebody tweet about this originally, and they say, do you think this is progressive? At Owen Jones, Billy Bragg? I don't think it's progressive. It's an ad campaign. I don't think it's progressive. No, but I, 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 I have literally no interest in, in people policing other, other people's bodies. And like I say, even if you're not that invested in this stuff, you think, God, this trans stuff, it's just everywhere in the media. What's going on? Like I say, this ends up in very, very strange places where you have alleged feminists, women, and men telling other women, born as women, cis women, that they look like men. It's crazy. It's crazy. And you're right, they're extremists. Because I loved how, you know, the host was just like, well, I'm just passing on the message. <laughs> don't, don't expect me to defend the position. I'm just passing on the message. Uh, like, because there was no response you could have. Really brilliant. Um, well done to that caller on LBC. Final story. Rishi Sunak has been caught telling lies. Yes, the man once celebrated as the antidote to the post-truth politics of Boris Johnson has now been rebuked by his own official statistics body. The complaints from the UK Statistics Authority concern Sunak's claims about asylum backlogs. The details are as follows. In a statement to the House of Commons in December, the Prime Minister claimed that the asylum backlog, 132,000 cases at the time, was half the size of the backlog left by the departing Labour government in 2010. This implied the backlog in 2010 would have been about 260,000. In the same month, the Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick and the Safeguarding Minister Sarah Dines told MPs that 450,000 and 500,000 legacy cases had been left by the Labour government. However, the UK Statistics Authority found the statements, quote, do not reflect the position shown by the Home Office's statistics, unquote. Sir Robert Choate, the UKSA, so the UK Statistics Authority chairman, said the asylum backlog in 2010 was 19,000 meaning the number of outstanding claims had in fact risen almost ninefold to 166,000. So that's a pretty big error. Rishi Sunak claimed the asylum backlog had been halved. In fact, it has increased ninefold, right? So you, you think it's halved? No, it's actually increased by nine times, right? That's a big error, big margin of error there. Well, not a margin of error, big, big, big sort of margin of wrongness, I suppose maybe we can say. Um, so how did they come up with this bad statistic, you asked? Did they just completely pull it out of their asses? Um, not quite, um, although pretty close. So the Guardian report this. Um, Jenrick and Dines appear to be referring to figures from the then Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration and the UK Border Agency, which included a large number of duplications, errors or applications moved to a controlled archive, and contained applicants who were untraceable dead or had become an EU citizen through another channel. Choate said, so this is the head of the Statistics Authority, given the data quality issues at that time, it would not be reasonable to suggest that this management information from the UK border agency accurately represented half a million genuine undecided asylum applications then in the backlog. Choate said he had engaged with Sunak, Jenrick and Dines to bring this to their attention and quote, share the UK Statistics Authority's expectations for the use of official statistics and data in public debate. So in short, Sunak, Jenrick and Dines were using figures which included dead people 
as well as people who had got their citizenship via other means and a bunch of duplications. So these were not people waiting for decisions on asylum claims. Um, Aaron, we're used to, you know, the, the whole idea that Sunak would be this big break from Boris Johnson and suddenly we would have honesty and competence in politics and we wouldn't have this politics in the gutter. I mean, obviously that was ridiculous. Um, but this is pretty bold, isn't it? Saying something has halved when in fact it's increased by nine times. It's very Trumpian. Um, and I don't mean that like, uh, you know, Trumpian rhetoric, like it's the kind of error that Donald Trump would make, you know, like he would like have decimal points in the wrong places and stuff, you know. Um, and, and like you say, Sunak was being presented as this fastidious, clever guy, um, not necessarily progressive, but, you know, somebody who's comfortable with the U.S. coastal elites. He's not stupid, right? You know, we saw those um, we saw those private messages between Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, and various other people at the height of the pandemic. And you know, um, you remember this better than I do, Michael, because you covered it here on uh, Navarra Live. You know, Dominic Cummings have to, having to explain to Boris Johnson, you know, about fractions and percentages and so on. I, I don't think people thought we'd have the same kinds of problem uh, with Rishi Sunak. And that quote from Choate, where he says, "I have engaged with." you know, Sunak and various ministers, for people who aren't, you know, British English, uh, maybe you're American English, maybe you're not here in the UK, what that means, I have engaged with, it means they're fucking idiots and I'm trying my best here. You know, I have engaged, when you have a mistake of that magnitude, I think English culture sort of is it's given to understatement, um, which is a shame in a way because you want people to really highlight the fact that somebody who's meant to be so clever, so competent, he comes from the city of London, you know, he's... He's a multi-billionaire. Uh, he could have been so successful in the corporate world. Of course, he used to work at Goldman Sachs. Well, his numbers don't seem particularly solid here. It's almost as if the elite in this country aren't particularly talented, intelligent people, Michael. Or maybe, maybe they just think they can lie um, so easily and that they won't get called up on it nine times out of ten. Probably a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, there's two parts of this story as well, isn't there? So there's the, the, the point of all of these ministers lying, and presumably they kind of knew it, right? I mean, we don't have proof of that, but... It, it, it seems like a sort of, I don't, I don't think they genuinely think they have the backlog because I think everyone in government and everyone in, you know, everyone basically understands that the backlog has massively increased under conservatives because it's been doing it consistently over time. It's not like it, you know, I don't think anyone is under the impression that more people are getting processed um, every year compared to the people that need processing. So that, that's what would need to be the case for it to be declining. So I don't see how they would have believed that. Um, the other aspect here is the starkness of the actual numbers. So not the numbers that were cited by Sunak and his ministers, but the reality, which is that at the end of the Labour governments in 2010, there was a backlog of 19,000 people whose asylum claims hadn't been processed. So 19,000 people. You could say that's still too many. That's still too many people who can't plan their lives um, because they're waiting on a decision that will determine um, the rest of their lives, you know, whether or not they'll get sent back to a country that often they desperately do not want to go back to or that they'd be in danger if they did go back to because we know that these decisions are often wrong. Um, and now it's 166,000. That is huge. 19,000 to 166,000. There are 166,000 people waiting to have their asylum claims processed. And the Conservatives want you to think that this is oh, this is completely inevitable. This is just so many people are coming that, of course, there's this huge backlog. Well, there were quite a lot of people coming when Labour were in government and the backlog was 19,000. So what's changed? It's not the number of people coming. It's the fact that you completely decimated well, I mean, every public service in this country. And potentially you're happy to stall it because you want to stoke a crisis um, you know, a migration crisis in the run-up to a general election because you've got nothing else to talk about. Aaron, brief comment on those numbers. 19,000 to 166,000 in terms of the size of the backlog. 
Well, you had Sola Breverman recently talk about how, you know, billions of people, I think, I think the number, well, she said hundreds of millions, and I think eventually it went to a billion, or maybe that was one of her colleagues. You know, hundreds of millions to a billion people want to come here to the UK, but don't worry, we've got the number of people in detention. It, you know, you, you're trying to peddle a crisis, you're saying, people, you know, we have an armada of people coming over the English Channel every day from continental Europe, but don't worry, the people in, you know, the, the, pe the people that are being detained, that, that number's going down. Well, which one is it? There's not much for clarity of message here. So, yeah, it's stupid, it's absurd, uh, it's obscene, uh, and I'm glad that Sunak on this particular case got caught out. Yeah, I was just um, quickly checking that Braverman claim. I think, I mean, she definitely said it. She said that billions of people are trying to reach the UK. So um, I think one in eight people living in the world trying to reach the UK. Um, and I don't think it even slipped out. It was written. So it was written down in the Daily Mail. So that means that it was, you know, written down, checked a bunch of times, then checked by the Daily Mail. And no one thought this is a crazy claim. Um, but it still managed to get printed. I suppose, again, that's the kind of debate that she wouldn't mind having a little, you know, sort of looping back to the discussion we were having about Labour's very misleading advert. For Suella Braverman, if you've got people saying, no, it's not billions of people that want to come here, it's just in the hundreds of thousands, she'll be like, well, this is a win. You know, me setting off this argument about whether or not my ridiculously false statement was ridiculously false is helpful to me because it means that a controversy which is helpful to the Conservative Party is dominating the airwaves. Um, Aaron, let's wrap up there. Uh, have a fantastic Easter. Do you celebrate? I do, yeah. I might be going, I think I'll probably go to church on Sunday. I do, Michael. I'll also have a little chocolate Easter egg with my wife. Uh, can I just quickly say, Michael, we also now have a Navarra Live feed as a podcast. And I implore everybody watching this to not just like, subscribe, donate, but to go to Spotify to follow the podcast. It's no longer the Navarra Media one. It's the Navarra Live one and leave a review. Because right now, the top two podcasts in news, Michael, I don't know if you know this, are with Alastair Campbell and Rory Stewart. You know, I'd rather Alastair Campbell uh, face as a jury at The Hague uh, than be top of the Spotify charts when it comes to podcasts. Help us unseat Alastair Campbell and go to Spotify and like this podcast and give us a follow. Yeah, it does make me feel very alienated to British political culture that they have the number one podcast on iTunes. Very, very depressing times. Um, thanks everyone for watching this evening. Have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday, on Easter Monday, um, for another Navarra Live from 6pm of course. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media on